good. Good to see you again. Same. I hope your your week is going well so far. It is. It is busy, but busy's good because I don't do good when I don't have a lot of stuff to do. It, it digresses quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. <laughs> I was thinking that. I was actually thinking about that thought a few minutes ago. I was thinking like, yeah, I do have a lot going on, but I don't even know how I would really operate if I didn't. So I know I get so excited when I have a day off and about four hours into it, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. (laughs) Like I'm done. I'm done. I had my, I slept in and everything was great. And now I need something to do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's how it usually ends up happening. That's funny. (laughs) But I won't um, take too much of your time. We're going to go into uh, the interview. And just as as a disclaimer, some of the questions might overlap from last time. I just am going to position today's conversation for those who might be looking at sleep paralysis um, in a way to come help them. And I also want to, you know, build credibility, you know, with um, your book being the source of our conversation. So awesome. Vicky, I I want to say thank you for writing They Come Out at Night because I learned a lot from not only about sleep paralysis, but just the style of researching and being a journalist. Um, I, I looked at it from that lens as well. So I was just like, wow, she's an awesome writer. But before I give it my little spill about, you know, how I see your work as credible, I would love for you to just share who you are based off of your religious belief and if you want to go as far as extending to your personality so that people can just have an understanding of, you know, who Vicky is in your own words. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. Um, Well, I was raised in what would be considered a traditional Christian home. I, I went to just a community church growing up. There wasn't a denomination associated with it. And this was back in the 70s. And then we went to some Baptist churches and then uh, a lot of things kind of around the 90s turned into non-denominational, which um, were kind of basic kind of Baptist-y kind of things. And uh, I still consider myself to be a Christian, but to borrow a term from Gary Wayne, who is an author and researcher from Canada that I greatly admire, he calls himself a contrarian. And I love that because I don't think that there's a lot of negativity associated with it. It's not a deconstruction. You know, there's people now that are deconstructing their Christian faith, but that has a connotation to it that they're moving away from it and they're denying it and they're walking away from it. Whereas a contrarian is someone who is willing to question the seminary textbook answers to everything. We're willing to question the traditions. We're willing to question everything we believe and say, is the seed or the root of this belief in the scriptures, or did it come from the church, or did it come from culture? And I have gotten to a point where if I can't expressly find this doctrine or this tradition rooted in the scriptures. And I don't just mean one convenient out of context verse, but I mean the whole of scriptures as a body of evidence. If I can't find this tradition or this belief in the scriptures, I'm allowed to question that. And I'm ultimately allowed to get rid of it if I don't think that it's useful to the the redemptive story. So that's kind of where I've come in the last 45 plus years of being a Christian. I prayed to receive Jesus when I was probably 
I think I was about three years old. I don't remember that event. Obviously, my mom told me about it. I remember praying to receive Jesus into my heart when I was in first grade. Uh, So that would have put me at about seven years old or six or something like that. But what has shaped my personality and my identity, oh, I don't want to say even more than than Christianity, but uh, I was uh, born with a birth defect. So from day one, I was in the hospital and separated from mom and under the scrutiny of all sorts of tests. And so from day one, it was kind of high stress. My very first surgery, which was brain surgery, where they went in and probed to see if if there was long-term mental retardation or, or brain damage, that was at 10 days old. And that started a life for me of constant hospital visits, surgeries, operations, follow-up visits, stitches, you know, you name it, bone grafts, skin grafts. Uh, And that went on until I was about 15 or 16 years old, uh, serious reconstructive surgery every summer vacation. Uh, My summer vacations all the way through elementary, junior, and high school were having a surgery around June and then spending the whole summer recovering from the swelling going down and having to learn to walk again because they had pulled part of the rib or the hip or something. And so there was a lot of bullying that went along with that because obviously kids are curious and they they tease you. You're, you're coming to school with, with stitches still on your face and it can be kind of gory. And uh, there was a lot of undiagnosed and unresolved trauma that came out of the bullying and the surgeries. Even though I was in a stable home, everything else around me was kind of like a war zone, which is what I think made me susceptible to sleep paralysis. But it also meant for me that there was no safe place. So anytime I went out in the public, there was staring, there was probing questions, there was perhaps cruelty. School was difficult, being around my peers was difficult, and my home, which would have been the one place where I would have been safe at all times, I would go to bed at night and I would more often than not have these nightmares, have sleep paralysis. And so I was sort of in the foxhole and living on adrenaline for for probably the first 40 years of my life, to tell you the truth. But because we know that God works all things together for good, the adage that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger really is true. And the way all of this worked in my life was it sort of turned me into this unstoppable, roaring like a lion, like, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Like, that's kind of what it it turned me into, right? So I look now at all of those years and the surgeries and the bullying and everything. I look at that as a crucible where I was being scorched in that fire, but it was making the gold, pure gold. It was refining the gold. It was burning off the dross. And that's the way that I look at it. Instead of being a victim or being bitter or thinking that it was all these years that were eaten up and lost, I look at it like it was a refiner's fire and it was the necessary burning of the dross that was required to bring out the purification of the metal. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That was beautiful how you brought that together with everything that's gone on in your life I mean, you say 40 years of feeling that way that's pretty heavy and it makes me think about you know 
the good versus the bad, you know, why this particular person gets this um, lot and this other person gets this lot. How do you maintain a faith in God and why do you even believe in God and go through that a little bit as far as the contrarian? I know that there's, there's, there's room to question, but when you have to use that same book as your guidance, but you question and there's some things that you're taking away, how do you work through the contradictions? How do you work through continuing to have faith when there is some things that should be taken away, especially when we have scriptures such as there's not supposed to be anything taken away, you know? Um, could you speak to that for a little bit? Just why do you believe in God? It's a great question. The The super high level, I would say the the eye roll answer, this is the one that would not pacify <laughs> Uh, this would not pacify an atheist or an agnostic, but I'm just getting the eye roll one out of the way because I know the limitations of my own strength. And it's easy for me now in a safe place to say like, oh, it was no big deal and it may be stronger. But when you're living in that for, for four decades and you're being teased at school and the most important thing is you want to look cute and you want to be asked out to the dance, like it's very painful, although those slow years where where things aren't getting better. So I don't want to trivialize that. But the eye roll answer is that I would have been completely broken and destroyed like everybody else, given the circumstances and the things that I had to go through. And so I can say now at 51 years old, I picked myself up by my own bootstraps because I'm a warrior, you know, or I, I could say, well, it was my upbringing and I had great parents, you know, and I, I can credit all these things. But the fact of the matter is I went through things that should have broken me and came very close many times to doing so. And the eye roll answer is that if I was not the apple of God's eye, if he didn't know my name and know the number of every hair on my head, if he wasn't saving every tear in his bottle, if I wasn't special to him, I would have been chewed up and spit out. And I probably, if I was alive today, I would probably be severely addicted to something that would ease my pain. So I don't want it to look like I'm taking credit for where I am today because I look at other people that have been through what I've been through, similar things or lesser things, that aren't in the boat that I'm in. And I don't think that the answer is that I'm somehow better or greater or stronger than they are because I'm made of the same flesh that they are. And so I think that I had some divine encouragement and some divine help. So with the pat little Christian answer out of the way, the reason why I can live with the suffering that I endured in my life, the sleep paralysis, the spiritual warfare, the bullying, the loneliness, the years of not having friends, the, all the surgeries the, and the having my face ripped off, you know, 15, 16, 17 times, you know, by the time I was 10 years old, where a lot of people go wrong in the church is we're not in the word. Because if I compare and contrast the life that I've been given to the life that we're promised in scripture, there's no discrepancy. There's no contradiction. I don't find verses that say, you're never going to hurt, you're never going to cry, I'm going to save you from, from all the things out there. If you look at the verses, it says, it rains on the just 
and the unjust. Sorrow happens. It says in in First Peter, do not be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes upon you to tempt you as though something strange were happening to you. And uh, it it shows examples of people with far greater faith than I have, far more holy, spiritual, righteous people in Scripture than I could ever hope to be. And these people suffered for righteousness sake, Jesus being one of them, of course, but Paul, Peter, all these disciples that were crucified and martyred for their faith, Stephen, who was stoned to death, Daniel thrown in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put into the fiery furnace, uh, on and on and on. Joseph in prison for all those years and separated from his family. So the scriptures also show me that one of the evidences of walking step in step with God and having faith is that our faith isn't based upon the circumstances. And even when the circumstances are dire, those things can still work together for good. I love when Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good, that I might come before you and save many lives. And so his brothers intended to sell him into slavery, but God had a plan in that, in getting Joseph located into where he needed to be located, the very courts of the Pharaoh of Egypt. So when this famine occurred through the wisdom and what he learned through his sorrows and his sufferings, he was able to save thousands, tens of thousands of lives um, because he was appointed in into a, a government position where he, he could have done that. And so uh, I think where a lot of people on both sides of the fence, Christians and non-Christians, where they get into these areas of thought where God can't possibly exist because look at this, and he's being cruel, he's being unjust, he's being mean, where a lot of Christians and non-Christians get backed into that corner is simply and only because they do not have a knowledge of the scriptures. Because if you're reading the scriptures, not a surface level, or you're not just passively sitting in a church pew once a week, sort of half listening to the pastor and half not, if you're really in the word daily and you're reading it, and you're observing what Jesus went through and what people who loved him went through. And when Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. No servant is greater than their master. Uh, if Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, if if he says that I'm going to save all your tears in a bottle, if he says all things work together for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, when he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, when he says, don't worry about what to say when you're dragged before kings and falsely accused, you'll see that the scriptures really aren't, it, it, it really isn't just a book of promises. And that's, I think, another thing that the Christian church in in good they, they don't mean to do this, but um, I know that on all the years that I went to church in, in Sunday school and in primary departments, they would have scripture memory. And so as you're a little kid, you'd memorize John 3.16 and you'd memorize these Bible verses. But what you would more often than not do is you would memorize a verse completely out of context. It would just be one little verse pulled out and it was usually a promise. It was usually God works all things together for good, and you'd memorize that. 
But the context of that, this is a good example. Uh, God works all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So if you don't love him and you're not walking with him and you don't believe him and you're shaking your fist at him and you're bitter because life didn't go the way you think it should go, and a Christian just tritely tells you, well, God works all things together for good. No, that's not what the verse says. God works all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So what I'm saying here is the church has unwittingly taught Christians to cherry pick promises out of the scriptures. And when they are pulled out of the context and just memorized in a vacuum, it really does make God look like a promise breaker because the parts of the verse that we're not memorizing are the parts usually that show the action that we have to take our part in it. Our, this is, this is a mutual relationship. And when we do this, God responds this way. But if we don't know what we're supposed to do to get that response, so we don't get the response, it looks like God's the one that failed. But really what it is, is our own ignorance of the fullness of, of what that promise entails. And so, uh, to, to kind of summarize your question, the reason that I can still not only believe in God, but I can trust him and I can love him is because I understand the, that the scriptures have never promised that I'm going to be receiving my inheritance here on earth. My ultimate reward and in inheritance is going to come in my resurrected body. Now, that doesn't mean good things don't happen to us here. Psalm 27, I think 13 and 14, I love that verse. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will wait on the Lord. Yes, I will wait on the Lord. So he gives us good gifts down here too. But we can inadvertently fall into the same trap as the prodigal son. The prodigal son went to his father and demanded his inheritance now. I want it now. And and he squandered it. And it's the same thing with us. We we go to God and we demand that inheritance now. I want this financial um, blessing. I want this job title. I want this kind of a spouse. I want this zip code. I want this level of beauty and youth and, and fitness and we are we're we're doing the same thing as the prodigal son. We're demanding an inheritance uh, before the time that the inheritance is supposed to take place. And so, uh, when we do that, the things that we that we get are often like the prodigal son. They're they're squandered. And so, I, I think that it is very tempting for a lot of us here on earth that when when we rub the magic genie and the genie doesn't give us our three wishes then the genie's a jerk or the genie doesn't exist. And the fact of the matter is that the relationship that we have conjured up in our mind, we, we look at God the Father like he is the sugar daddy, like that's the relationship we have with the Father. And that's not the relationship that is set up in scripture. So if that's whatever concept you have of the Father or of Jesus, if he doesn't live up to that, he is going to look like a promise breaker. So in order for him not to look like a promise breaker, you have to be familiar with who he really is and what his heart is and what his promises are. 
And there's only one way we're ever going to fully be in tune with that, and that is to study and scrutinize them in the scriptures where they're found. You brought up a lot of good points. Um, so many, so many that I want to expound upon, but I'll start here. You mentioned, you know, there's nothing that you actually did, but then there's an understanding in the Bible that, you know, you can have this particular blessing. And as you said, follow through with the rest of it. If your your heart is with God, if you're, you're following these commandments, then you're supposed to get this. Or, you know, I even had that experience with, you know, ask anything of me, but then you get deeper. Like, what does that actually mean? Can you get anything? And the reason why I want to sit there is I would imagine this relationship with God. If I see a scripture like that more than one time through studying that says acts of anything, you know, and if, and, and this will happen, you can get this if you follow these commandments or you do this, then a person who has, you know, come into a relationship with God or has grown up in a relationship with God is most likely going to have some type of understanding you know what that means it acts anything of me and when it comes to sleep paralysis to navigate there i wonder why that doesn't really work if you say can you stop this for some cases you know some mm-hmm. when they speak about speak um sleep paralysis throughout your book there are a lot of different stories and then we have some many actually that spoke about saying the name of jesus and then not ever experiencing it again but yeah. then we also have cases where they did say the name of Jesus and it stopped, um, but it continued to happen. And when I go a little bit in depth with, you know, your book, you also see that almost anything, everything can can categorize your sleep paralysis um, status. You know, it could be that you, all I saw was it is just sin. <laughs> you know, it's, even if we go back to, you know, what happened before, it just seemed like it's, it's, it's heavily related to sin. What I wanted to do is go over a few scenarios that stood out to me. And I think was a theme throughout the book, or maybe it just stood out to me and, and <laughs> I, I'm just interested in it. I want to go through the scenarios with you. It's only three. And then I just want us to kind of speak to each scenario because I imagine that anybody who wants to learn about sleep paralysis, for one, they'll learn it in your book. You definitely will learn <laughs> about sleep paralysis. I mean, the, the the different cultures bringing in, you know, the different aspects and how people see sleep paralysis. I loved every bit of that. And there's this disclaimer that you say in the beginning, like, even though you read this book, you might it might not stop. Right. And going back to that scripture, which is why I came back. Like, if I ask God, can you make this stop? If I do these things, I'm still sitting in this area. Well, why wouldn't it stop? If I am deep in the scriptures, if, you know, if I was, you know, grew up in a family that was covered by faith or covered by God, that could have been praying over me. Is it because the prayers aren't as detailed as they need to be? Or is it, you know, we just kind of throw things out there and whatever sticks will stick? Um, (laughs) That's a great question. And I'm going to start with two scriptures um, and they're both in 1 John. Uh, First of all, in 1 John 4, 1, he says, test every spirit. To see whether it's from God. And every spirit doesn't mean every demon or every angel. It means everything your pastor says, every book you read, every video you watch on YouTube, everything Vicki says in her book. Test every spirit to see whether it's from God. And so 
this is another place where people get into trouble, Christian or not. Yeah. We, we have so much confidence in our own discernment. We have so much confidence in, in our education and in our intelligence and how civilized we are and how technological we've become and how scientific we are. And we are so dead sure in everything we believe. And we meet someone for the first time and within 30 seconds we have an impression and that's who that person is. And we are so confident. And the scripture doesn't say to rely on your own discernment or whatever sort of uh, intelligence level or IQ or gift of prophecy or discernment you think you have. It, it says to test every spirit to know whether it's from God. And so if we fail to do that, uh, we deserve to be fooled and tricked because we, we're being warned to do that. And it, it's, a, it's a legitimate command that we're supposed to actually perform. Uh, it also says in 1 John a little bit earlier in chapter 2, and I think this is verse 24, 26, it's somewhere around there. And it's talking about how now that Jesus has died and risen and is now seated at the right hand of God, now someone greater has come to, to guide the believers, and that is the Spirit of God. Whether you call it the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost or the Ruach or, you know, I just call it Spirit of God. Um, the Spirit of God is is given to people that receive to re receive Christ. And uh, it says in John chapter 10 that my sheep know me and they hear my voice. They recognize my voice. And so one of sort of the mysterious supernatural gifts that's given to believers is they have this spirit of God to guide them. And it says in John 2, 20, 24, 26, it says, now that you have this anointing, you have no need of any man to teach you. Now this doesn't mean this doesn't mean you never go to church again or anytime someone gives you some counsel you say screw you you know what what this means is uh, the whole book of First John is talking about wolves in sheep's clothing. It's talking about antichrists and false prophets, and it's not talking about the world. John is warning believers to not listen to what they're hearing in the synagogue and amongst believers because there are so many now wolves in sheep's clothing among them preaching a, a form of the gospel that sounds good, but there's lies woven in it. And so he's warning the church to test everything that they hear in seminary and in church and in the Christian bookstores, right? And so I will preface the answer to your question with anyone, regardless of my education, regardless of the fact that I went to Bible college and I was on the dean's list and, uh, you know, I'm working on a master's and I can speak Koine Greek. I, it doesn't matter what Vicki knows. Everything that I've learned, I've learned on a fallen planet through the lenses of other human beings who have written the curriculum. Mm -hmm. I I am navigating this matrix the same way everyone else is. I'm basing a lot of the stuff in my research on my own experiences in sleep paralysis. And you know what? Sleep paralysis, like everything else, it's not formulaic. It's not the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't all see the same things and experience the same things. And we're not all being targeted for the same reasons or we're not all being groomed for the same purposes. And so it's, it's always a moving target. And I'll tell you, Danny, <laughs> I wrote the the book was published a year ago, and it was written three or four years ago. Mm. 
just in the year that it's been published and I've been on podcasts and I've talked to other people and I've counseled people, I've learned so much more. I could write three more books. So mm-hmm. th- that that's the thing with knowledge. It's, it's constantly increasing and moving forward. So all I can tell people is I wrote the book with three goals in mind and bearing in mind that I, my intellect is flawed and my knowledge is limited uh, because knowledge is constantly increasing. But there were three things that I prayed uh, during the course of the entire book process. So for four years now, I have been constantly in prayer, praying that this book would bring glory to the name of Jesus, that it would expose the deeds of the devil, and that it would set captives free. So if anything, readers of the book can know that my heart was in that place when I wrote the book. My my desire was to help other people who are going through this. And I'm not looking at it like I am some sort of college professor or some guru and everyone's going to come and sit at my feet and learn from me. What's, what I really wanted this book to do was gather the sufferers of sleep paralysis together, give them a, play, a safe place where they could talk about it and not be scrutinized, judged, laughed at, labeled schizophrenic. And what I'm really doing is talking to other people. And every time I talk to someone with sleep paralysis, I'm not just sitting there speaking into a silent telephone as they're taking notes. I am learning so much from the people who are talking to me as well. It's a collective gathering together of people and we're all exchanging notes. And the people that are uh, that I'm talking to it's, it's sleep paralysis. It's people who have been pulled into the astral. It is people who've been abducted by the greys and uh, people that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago would have been thrown into padded cells for the things that, that have happened to them. So I hope that my book is helpful. I, I hope that it exposes the agenda of the evil spirit realm. I hope that people's eyes are open, that people understand that this astral realm and the spirits that interact there are dangerous. They are liars. They're deceivers. They're false prophets. I hope that people that have suffered from this can find relief from it. But at the end of the day, if I can't help people who've gone through this, and help doesn't always mean cured for life. Sometimes help is, I understand. I believe you. Sometimes that's all the help people need. Uh, but at the end of the day, if um, if the book fails to glorify God, if it fails to expose the evil agenda and it fails to help people, it would have been better had I never even written the book. But what I will say is I have gotten feedback from several people who have read the book. And um, the from what I'm being told, the book is helping people who are suffering with this. And that's that's all I need to hear because anybody with an ability to write can put beautiful sentences on a piece of paper. But if that's all it is, is beautiful prose and people walk away saying, I'm sure this has happened to you, Danny. It's happened to me before. I've got a situation in life and I find this book and I, I go into that book with prayer and I, I am like, I can't wait for this book to fix or solve or, or answer the question. And we've all been there where you get to the end of the, end of the book and you're like, 
that didn't help me at all. I'm I'm still at square one. I have no I that didn't do anything for me. That that to me would would be the mark of of a fail a failed book on my behalf. If 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 no one comes back to me and says that that was helpful, uh, then I need to quit my day job and find something else to do with my time. <laughs> <laughs> but I I hope that that answers the question, Danny. Um, I I ultimately the way I set the book up. And I did this intentionally at the end of every chapter, I have a page of warfare points and a cleansing prayer. And the reason I do that is because I want people to take the information I'm giving them and use it as a springboard. It's not the be all end all. It's not like memorize every word in this book. And I want every chapter to be a springboard into prayer, Mm -hmm. into journaling, into fasting, into worship where you have a unique personal interaction with Jesus regarding your sleep paralysis and what's the source of yours and what can you do and why is God allowing it to go on in in your life? What's the purpose that it's gone on, going on and not going away? And so what I'm hoping is, is that each chapter is a springboard that will launch each reader into a, a personal journey in, in finding why this is happening to them and how to stop it. Yeah. I would say also to add on to everything that you said, as someone who's read the book and loved the book, again, I'll mention this and I'll elaborate a little bit more why I appreciate the book from my perspective is because just like the Bible, I feel like the Bible is alive where if you have a relationship with God, you go through the scriptures and you really have these questions that are thoughtful and you really want to learn. You will seek and you shall find, right? Like you're, you're, you're having that experience and you'll find. I am learning how to be a better researcher, but it takes the, the principles Um, the principle that you mentioned at the end of your book, I mean, at the end of each chapter and just your research style should go throughout all the different aspects of someone's life, right? Because I feel like if we all navigated our questions with God and our experiences with life, the way that you did with this book, that's another way that, you know, you can tell that God is being glorified with using you as a vessel because I'm looking at the book like, oh, I'm going to learn about sleep paralysis. But like, I'm more like, wow, this, this research style is perfect for studying. It's Mm. perfect for studying the word of God. This is why I think, you know, some people, people are on these different journeys spiritually because I could get this wrong. King is King. I think, uh, one of the kings went out and they searched all through all the books and they came back to fear God and keep his commandments. And that's what it feels like when you go on these searches and you learn different things. But as you go on these different searches and learn different things, people are going to judge you for going outside of the Christian faith because you go outside of Christian faith, you should be afraid you're going to do something wrong. But what if it is going to bring you back and bring you back with a perspective that's, it's just, it's, it's more, um, intense, you know, your relationship is, is more authentic. You know, when it talks about freedom of choice, you're choosing this. It's not like you're programmed by other people that, Hey, if you don't do this, this is wrong, you know? So, um, I would say that from reading your book, I gathered more than enough from the experience and, um, and I, I just want to thank you for allowing God to use you in that way. Uh, now with these scenarios, you spoke to some of them, 
as you were talking. And I'll just give the understanding of each one before I go into the scenario. And then what I want us to do from it is just, you go through this in your book, but for anyone who, you know, comes across a cliff and, and gets to see this video, I want it to be something that they can capture and, and take away based off of your strategies and your approaches. So this first scenario is sleep paralysis coupled with mental illness. Mm -hmm. So person A has been experiencing sleep paralysis episodes frequently, and they also have a diagnosed mental illness, such as anxiety or depression. They often find the episodes of their mental illnesses increase in symptoms that's caused an intense fear and heightened anxiety. How would you advise this person to manage their sleep paralysis experiences while also considering their mental health condition? Are there any strategies or approaches that you find could be effective in this case? Now, right before they answer the question, I also want to note that mental illness is going to look different, you know, for some who identify as Christian or, or follow God. So it was to also speak to how you look at mental illnesses. Yeah, this is a tough question because it can be so needlessly controversial if you word it incorrectly. So I have yeah. a little I have a little preface to this. I'm not one of these Christians that thinks there's no such thing as mental illness. There's no such thing as brain anomalies or TBIs. I'm not one of these Christians that thinks that if you have a mental illness, you should pray for healing and, you know, all these this Christian science kind of aspects, right? There are legitimate uh, mental illnesses out there. But where this gets sticky is it kind of becomes a which came first, the chicken or the egg scenario with sleep paralysis because uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In my case, the sleep paralysis might have came first. But here's the thing. When I was born with this birth defect and 10 days into my life, I'm in an operating room with my face getting cut off, which is basically, they, you know, they cut me from ear to ear. I think when I was one years old, that was uh, one of my surgeries. They cut me from ear to ear and pulled my face down and removed stuff. And so from things that I've been reading about brain development, there are certain things that have to happen by a month into a child's life, three years into a child's life, et cetera, et cetera. And if those things aren't happening, if those bonding things aren't happening, that you will start to carve neural pathways in your brain that will cause you to detach or to disassociate or to be put into survival mode. So what came first for me? Detachment and anxiety or the sleep paralysis? Because the sleep paralysis started when I was probably two, three years old. And and so I can say that I have memories of that happening before I had any conscious memory of having anxiety or depression. But brain-wise, I don't know which happened first. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anyone who's had sleep paralysis over the course of 20, 30, 40 years, like I have, that wouldn't have along with it something that the secular world would have a label for right? So I don't have any of those labels because I never went to a therapist. I never went to a psychologist. I, it was just never, not because those things were withheld from me, but they weren't really done in the seventies. And for the most part, I was a well-adjusted kid and I had friends and I was happy and there was no outward signs at that point that I needed that kind of help. So what was happening is 
I was just kind of dealing with all of that stuff. Now, if I had gone to a licensed therapist or a psychologist or someone, let's say in high school, I am pretty sure they would have labeled me PTSD. They would have labeled me with childhood trauma. They would have labeled me probably some arrested development in some areas. They would have labeled me high anxiety, panic disorder, and depression. I, Because I was dealing with all that stuff and just never knew it. Yeah. So with that said, it's so hard to talk about this, Danny, because I want to be sensitive to the fact that when you're living with crippling anxiety and depression and PTSD, it's real and it's crippling. And another thing that a lot of people have when they have stuff like that is they have racing thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I had that as well. Your brain is like one of those like 24 track things in a, in a recording studio. Everything that you're processing that day is being recorded and then being played. So the song you heard in the radio on the bus on the way to school, the, what you heard in your first period class, the conversation you had at your locker afterwards, like the, the song you heard in your headphones. By the time you get home at night, all of these things are blah, 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 blah. Plus, you've got all of your own intrusive thoughts and all of your insecurities and all of your worries about the next day and the test that's coming and all this. And I used to tell my mom, I wish that I could just unplug my brain and just have silence. I, I used to tell her when I was a kid, I hope the first 100 years of heaven, I get to be alone in a padded room and I can't, <laughs> I can't do anything but my own heartbeat. And she would just look at me, she'd give me this weird look. Um, but it's because I had undiagnosed racing thoughts. Yeah. So one thing that I would advise someone who's going through all of this stuff, I'm almost glad that I never got the official diagnoses. I found out after the fact, after, as the father was healing me from these things, he would identify them. Hey, do you know you have anxiety? What? Like they were, it was revelatory to me. And I'm almost glad that I didn't have the labels because once we get a label, that becomes who we are. And we don't say things like, you know, my name's Vicki. Um, I am a, a child of God, but I suffer with some anxiety. You know, we don't say that. We say, I am autistic. I am disabled. I am. These I am statements, those are contractual statements. Those are binding statements. When you start saying things like that out loud, and I would just really urge people, you might have sleep paralysis. You might experience sleep paralysis. And as a result, you might struggle with anxiety, struggle with PTSD, struggle with depression, but none of those things are who you are. And so what we have to do is, and is this just a mind game? This stuff is binding in the spirit realm. And I do talk about that at length in chapter four about these covenants that, that are made. And I talk about it in the book in chapter six, these lies that we believe and these vows that we make. These labels are not a summation of who we are. And this is, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Danny, about we tend to see God as a promise breaker because we don't really know what he has and hasn't promised. If we look to the scriptures and see who God says we are and who Christ says we are, and we take on those labels, there are some amazing things in scripture. We're called 
God's friend. We are called children of God. We're called highly favored. We're called high priests. We're called the apple of his eye. That's who we are. So it's inevitable. If you are a abductee experiencer, UFO, if you have these paranormal experiences, uh, if you've got the sleep paralysis, you will have side effects and consequences that the world will be very quick to have a label for. And what I would urge you to do through prayer, I'm not going to say anything like, don't stop going to your therapist, stop taking your meds. I'm not going to say anything like that. What I'm going to say is I would take that to the Lord in prayer. And one of the things that I did in my life, Danny, when I realized that I had severe anxiety and depression is I I went to the Lord and I said, it says in scripture that you are our healer. The, the Hebrew is Jehovah Rapha, which means God, our healer. And I contracted with the Lord and I said, I am appointing you as my primary care physician. Now that doesn't mean I don't go to other doctors or I don't seek other people's counsel or advice, but that's my second opinion. And when I appointed God as my primary care physician, and I started coming to him before I would go to a doctor or anything, I would bring it before the throne and I would ask him for the counsel or the the direction I should go in. I would ask him to send me to the doctors that would give me the best counsel and et cetera, et cetera. So this is a really difficult question to answer concisely because the mental illness question is so huge. One thing I would maybe suggest, and this might be overwhelming, depending on how deep down, you know, um, deep down the mental health route you are in, but the scripture is really interesting to me. There, There are many examples in the New Testament where Jesus would heal someone who came to him who were sick. They were blind, they couldn't hear, they couldn't walk. And in some cases, he took on the role of a physician and he healed them. He spit in the mud and made a salve and put it on their eyes and they could see. He said, go and dunk yourselves in, you know, in, in this pool and, and they were healed, etc. But there were other times where someone came to him with a physical malady and instead of healing them, he cast out a demon. Mm. So what I am not saying is if you have a physical or a mental illness, you've got a demon and go to an exorcist. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the Bible lays a case that in some cases there are demonic and spiritual forces at play that are affecting or exacerbating our physical and our mental issues. And so the counsel that I would give isn't scrap everything that you ever learned or scrap everything that you're doing or never go to a doctor again or don't take any of your meds. What I would say is if God has not been invited into that conversation, if he's not on the board of advisors helping you make your decisions, invite him to that spot at the table. And it doesn't mean that there's something demonic going on or that if a demon's cast out of you, you'll be healed uh, or anything like that. But what it does mean 
is that you have the advantage to some divine help and some divine insight. And you've got someone with the ability to heal you and help you on that journey. And so I, I do go into quite a bit of detail, I think in chapter two or three of the book on the ancient Asclepions, uh, which were the ancient houses of healing. And it's really interesting to me, Danny, not surprising, but it's interesting to me that we now live in a culture where medicine and spirituality have been completely divorced from one another. That was never the case in antiquity. The houses of healing in antiquity were always temples. The physicians were high priests. And we see it even in Jesus's day in the first century when Jesus would heal someone, the first thing he would do was send them to the temple. He'd say, go to the temple now, because in the Torah, when you were cleansed of leprosy or whatever, it was the high priest that declared that you'd been healed, not a physician. And so I think that we need to get back to a place in our mind where we recognize that our mental and our physical and our spiritual health are all intertwined. And if one is out of whack, two or three of them are going to be out of whack. If we're spiritually completely out of joint, it will affect our mental and our physical. If we are super, super sick and we're in chronic pain, it affects the mental and it affects the spiritual. Uh, and when we are suffering with legitimate mental illnesses, that is going to affect our physical and our spiritual. And so we have to start taking things that have been blown apart and we need to gather them back together because we're not going to understand full healing unless we know that all three of those components need to be intertwined. That's good. This next one is uh, sleep paralysis and new age spirituality. So this person practices new age spirituality and believes in concepts like astral projection and energy healing. They view sleep paralysis as an opportunity for spiritual exploration, even um, consider a form of astral travel. How would you approach a conversation with this person, provide some insights that combine their spiritual beliefs and practical methods for understanding and coping with uh, sleep paralysis? Um, how might you navigate the intersection between their spiritual perspective and your research findings? Great question. So I'll give you the Christianese, and then I will give you um, the way I would talk to someone who actually was practicing New Age. I am of the ilk, Danny. I do not think that being arrogant or condescending or argumentative is mm -hmm. going to accomplish my three goals. My three goals, whether I'm talking about sleep paralysis or anything else, is does it bring glory to God? Does it expose the deeds of the devil? Does it set captives free? So I can sit and quote the Greek and I can I can use sarcasm and I can make someone look stupid and I can walk away winning an argument. But if I haven't accomplished those three things, I have utterly failed. So the way that I talk to a Christian and someone deeply entrenched in New Age is going to be different because we're coming from different paradigms and different bases of of of, of knowledge about the scriptures. Uh, but I am going to be kind and absolutely respectful and genuine with both audiences. So what the Christianese answer is that in Ephesians 6.12, 
it says, the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against every power, principality, heavenly archon, uh, forces of evil and darkness and, and things like that. It depends on the translation that you're reading. It kind of gives four categories of, of entities um, that are in the high places, I believe is the King James, but other translations say heavenly places. So this is the cipher for a Christian to understand. Um, if you break down the Greek in that passage, so let me just break down the archaic language. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but against every power, principality, etc. What that's basically saying in layman's terms is, um, so Danny, you and I, let's say we get into a huge argument. It could be a religious difference. We're fighting about religion. We could be fighting about politics. One of us is Democrat, one of us is Republican. We can be fighting over sexuality. One of us is straight, one of us is gay. We can be fighting over race. We can be fighting over anything and look at all the ways that they're trying to polarize people and put us into little categories so that we can bicker men against women and millennials against the boomers and all this stuff, right? What that verse is saying is the battle, ultimately, if you and I get into a huge fight, it really has nothing to do with our age group, our generation. It doesn't have to do with our religion or our politics. It doesn't have to do with our skin color or our gender or our sexuality. It, it's not a horizontal fight. Our true enemy, the one that is behind all of those horizontal fights, the one that is stirring that all up, it's vertical. These entities that live in the high places is really the ones that we're doing battle with or where, our, where we should be focusing our attention. That's that's all Ephesians 6.12 is saying. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. Our battle's not with each other. Our battle is with these things. But if you break down the Greek, the high places in, in the Greek, it's talking about a second heaven. It's We know it's not talking, when it says heavenly places, we know it's not talking about the throne room of God because it's already told us in Ephesians 6.12 that the people that live in these heavenly places are enemies of God. We are at war with them and they are princes, principalities and powers of evil and darkness. But that's not describing heaven where seraphim are saying holy, holy, holy all day long, right? So we know that this is a different heaven. And you can break this down into the fact that this is the false heaven. This is the, this is the astral plane. It, it is telling us that the angels and the ascended masters and the gurus and the uh, entities that roam around in these high places, we're told flat out in Ephesians 6.12 that these people are enemies of God and of mankind. So I always say, like they say in realty, it's the same thing with sleep paralysis and new age and paranormal and astral projection. It's all about three things, location, location, location. So do we want our prayers to reach the throne room of God or do we want it to reach the astral plane? You know, and so that brings into play the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And these things in, in the high places, they are other gods. And 
this is another thing that Christianity gets wrong and that I challenge. When we, when Christians say that we are monotheistic and we only believe in one God, that's not backed up biblically. What we mean by that is we only worship mm. one God. Okay. There's a supreme God who created all the other ones, but that doesn't mean they're not gods. In fact, in Psalm 82, if you read it in the correct translation that hasn't been beaten up and they like to fix verses in the English sometimes because it doesn't make sense or it doesn't fit the, and Psalm 82 freaks people out because it, it looks like it's contradicting monotheism, but it says that Elohim with a capital E, Elohim is the Hebrew word for what we would say is God has a little bit of a different meaning, but it says Elohim, capital E, says to the Elohim, lowercase e, um, you say that you are gods, but you will die as men. So what he's doing is he's he's judging these fallen angels and saying that one day you're going to fall like men, but he doesn't call them angels. He calls them Elohim, which is little g God. And so what we have to understand as Christians is other gods, lesser gods, created gods, submissive to the real gods, but they do exist. So when we say that one God, what we're saying is we worship the one God. So um, that would be kind of like my Christianese answer. If you're a Christian, I'd say the reason why astral projecting at night and, you know, Christians have different terms for this. They say that they go to the courts of heaven and they beseech God for their mission and they're helping with the Great Commission and all this. And they have a much, uh, they have different vocabulary words, but uh, th th this concept that we are astral projecting into the high places at night in the dream world and we're interacting with beings of light and we're, we're being taught things and we're being put on missions. We got to be really careful with that because uh, we know who dwells in the high places because of Ephesians 6, 12. Uh, and I go into a little bit more detail on that in my book, as well as um, I was on Skywatch TV and I go on one of my two presentations on Skywatch TV, I go into a way more in depth into the Ephesians 6, 12. Now, if I was actually talking to a new ager, I... I really can't say all that because they could say, well, I don't believe in the Bible or, well, you know, that was written by men. So they'll accuse you of circular logic. And it, the goal isn't to look smarter or use theological words or say that you went to seminary. The goal is to get them to understand what you're saying. So with them, I would appeal on more of a one-to-one -one logic basis. Because again, New Agers all have different beliefs and different experiences. Some of them are astral projecting and they have an ascended master. Um, some of them have a familiar. Some of them aren't up there for the purposes of learning or they just, they like to explore the astral realm. Some of them just like it for the entertainment of it, the sex and the recreation and the, the feelings of it. Um, then you've got people who are interacting with the Council of Eight and the Council of Nine, which is, you know, now we're talking like An Anunnaki, our, our progenitors. You're a star seed. You you are an angel, and you're down here now um, with somewhat of a cosmic amnesia, and you're being guided by the council to help mankind ascend that that sort of thing. And so, um, a lot of that stuff comes from theosophy. It comes from Eastern mysticism. It comes from Gnostic texts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I think what I would do with the New Ager is 
I would genuinely, Danny, want to get to know their story. I would want to know what what specifically do you believe, just like no two Christians really believe anything the same. I would really want to get a feel for what they believed. And then I would want to know their story. I would want to know what led up to their being introduced to this and why it was appealing to them. Um, I really think the key, whether you're dealing with an atheist or a Catholic or a Christian or whatever, when we bicker with other people over you know, political or religious or cultural differences, what it really is, is a failure to put yourself in that person's shoes. And I know that sounds really simple, but I, in my youth, used to be one of these people that would get so triggered if someone didn't like theologically believe everything I did about, you know, what each scripture verse meant. But when I shut my mouth and I started listening, I had this aha moment. For some reason in my youth, I just assumed that every Christian, like I, I'm not, I'm not joking. I really believed because I was born and raised in a Christian home that everyone who said that they were a Christian were born and raised in a Christian home. And they were taught all this stuff since Sunday school and they knew better and they should obviously know this. And the more I listened to people, the more I realized there's Christians out there who were raised in abusive homes and never went to church and never learned about the Bible. And um, there's people out there who've been a Christian for three months and they haven't found a church yet. And so uh, I find that when we when we really get to know a person's story, why they believe the things that they believe really start to make sense. And the the nice thing about dealing with another Christian is you can do tough love and you can you can argue scriptures and they're going to be more prone to believing and being convicted by those scriptures. But I think that when you're talking to someone who does not have, they have not built the entire the foundation of their entire existence isn't this biblical worldview. I think that apologetics and arguing with those people or trying to convince them isn't the is isn't the right approach. I think the right approach in those situations is to get to know them, to let them do most of the talking, to let them know that you are eager to to know their heart. And once they recognize that you are genuine, you're not there to fire hose them with the Bible or to judge them or condemn them or mock them. Once they recognize that you are safe and authentic and truthful, you have earned your right then to express what you believe and why you believe. And there's, there's it's not going to be seen through defensive filters anymore. I talk to New Age people on a weekly basis because I have people that see my podcast and they call me and I have extremely cordial conversations with them Danny these are genuine people who have more of an interest in spirituality than the average American right and here's something that almost everyone I've talked to who has had sleep paralysis or paranormal experiences or or a deep sense of spirituality, um, whether you're Christian or you're New Age, here's what 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 they all have in common. A lot of these people who are attracted to New Age, they're extremely spiritual people. They're creative people. They're highly empathetic people. They're intelligent people. They tend to have a lot of compassion and altruistic viewpoint of the world. They want to have a purpose. They want to help other people. And that's why I think this particular 
type of person is who's targeted in these astral and out-of-body and lucid and sleep paralysis and UFO abduction scenarios. And a lot of people who are creative and intelligent and empathetic, another thing they have in common is there was a lot of childhood trauma. Because trauma, in many cases, breeds those types of people. People who have been through trauma have a lot of empathy for other people who are. And so it's kind of the M.O. And so I think that with if, if you're a Christian and you're talking to New Agers, I would urge you to understand all of the things that you do have in common. The one thing you don't have in common is you have a different religious worldview of what's going on in the world and what your role is in it. Okay, that part's different. But everything that leads up to that underneath it, there are so much that we have in common. And if you can focus on those things that you have in common so that you don't have to be angry or bitter or judgmental or mean or arrogant, and you can just develop relationships and have conversations, you're both going to learn a lot from each other. And so I think to summarize, when I have these conversations with New Agers, I intentionally level the playing field in my own mind. I'm not going into it like I'm the one with all the answers and they're wrong and I'm better than they are or I'm smarter than they are. I, I don't go into it beating them over the head with scripture because what, what we really have to do as Christians with everyone we talk to, a neighbor, a coworker, it doesn't matter if you're talking to someone who's agnostic or someone who struggles with same-sex attraction or you're talking to someone of a like a different country so they have a different religion. Whoever you're talking to, if you go into it understanding this person was created in the image of God, God knows the number of hairs on that person's head. He's saved every tear that that person has ever cried. His desire for that person is a relationship with them and eternal life. Uh, I pray and say, God, allow me to see these people through your eyes. But if your ultimate goal isn't to glorify God, expose the deeds of the devil and set captives free, walk away. Do not talk to that neighbor or friend or coworker. If you do not care whether or not Jesus Christ latches hold of them and is able to fulfill the plans that he has for their lives, if you don't want to be a part of that, you just want to bicker or look smart or have a story for your Bible study class the next day about how you told that gay person or you told that atheist. If that's all you're looking for, walk away. You're going to do so much damage to the kingdom of God if if you don't walk into it with the, with the right motives. Very well said. I, even to that point of, you know, Christians being a little tougher with one another, I would still extend that same grace because of, like you mentioned, what level of Christianity are they experiencing? You know, and I and I and I only say this because I've been very, um, I guess, I've, I've been exploring. You know, I, I grew up in Christianity, and you know, I have never really explored too much of like 
and I, I think somebody might have even I may maybe if they were a Christian would identify me as a new age new ager, but I didn't know for a long time what that was because I wasn't practicing astro or get I didn't even look at crystals in a way that people like put names and meanings to it. I just thought they were pretty, um, but. I never really had them, you know, like, but there's just like, I, but I always was, but I was free with understanding people mm. in Christianity. It seems like there isn't that freedom to just understand people. And I think that's why I deter away from it some days. Um, because I look at Christians deal with each other and it's just like so much division and mm-hmm. so much of that dispute and quarrel. And I wonder like, do we read those scriptures as well? I know there are scriptures about, you know, how we're supposed to do this, but it's also these other scriptures that say, think on these things and, and share with us how to, to interact with one another. And my lens of the Bible is very like sunshiny and butterflies for a while until I realized, wow, God is doing things that I didn't expect, you know, through <laughs> studying. But I always still find myself, even now after learning all this, all these other um, attributes of God, that I still end up in those places where he's soft and he has grace and he's loving and he's caring. And I think, well, how do I want to share that same view when I'm dealing with people? Because if someone's going to try to convince me of anything, I don't think yelling at me is going to work being condescending, making fun of me. And this is the content that I see where people are very strong about their viewpoint. They yeah. know that it's absolute right. And it could be, it really could be the at Some people are saying phenomenal things. It could be absolutely right. People need to hear it, but your delivery has a lot to do with how people are going to receive it. And that's just my theory. Maybe it doesn't matter. So I know there's a other perspective of God being a, a austere God. And, you know, sometimes just, you don't have to take it, but I'm one of those people that are in the world. And I know that from my experience, you wouldn't be able to sway me your way if you sway me with, you know, making fun of things that I might experience or being condescending or angry. And um, that's that's how I would just say that to that point. I wanted to speak to that. That Christian on Christian battle sometimes it just get tough and rough out here on the internet streets. <laughs> it is easier sometimes, I think, to talk to someone from a totally different paradigm. Because when you're in the same paradigm, there's this erroneous idea that there's going to be perfect unity. So when there's not, it's so much more disappointing and confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's so much more. And, you know, it does say in the Bible that iron sharpens iron. And I yeah. get that. Like sometimes, you know, there, there's things um, that get rough. But I also think that there's things worth arguing and there's things not worth arguing. And so if something's a salvation issue, if something's a salvation issue and I think that your soul is in jeopardy, I'm going to get loud because I love you. But if it's something stupid, like, you know, I am not going to sit on a peripheral non-salvation issue and and not only jeopardize a, a relationship, but jeopardize the reputation of Christ because we walk around as representatives of him. We're ambassadors for Christ. So when we look like total jerks and idiots and narrow-minded fools, we're ambassadors. We're making him look bad. And and there are so many people that turn away from, they think 
they're they're turning away from Christ, but what's really offensive to them is is the ambassadors, not so much the the one we're representing. And that's sad. And we we've all we've all been there. I will say as an aside, Danny, that one of the things that I really have hope for, so I'm Gen X, and you know, you always hear the baby boomers and the Gen Xers like dog and the millennials and the Gen Z, you know, and all this stuff. This is where I have so much hope in our future. Uh, when I look at millennials and I look at Gen Zers, they have a capacity to do something that the the Gen Xers and the baby boomers have not been good at. And that is, in my generation and above, you couldn't challenge authority. Mm. You couldn't challenge the traditions. You can't even ask a baby boomer or a Gen Xer there's exceptions. There's always outliers. You can't even ask a question without rage and pounding on the desk and all this, right? And what I love, because I, I have had the opportunity now in the last year to interact with tons of millennial and Gen Z podcasters. So these are like Christian guys who are, are like of a younger generation than me. And you are allowed, I feel like I've been bottled up for 20 years. There's all these things in scripture that I want to talk about, but you can't because like you're going to just like rip a hole in the space-time continuum if you bring it up, right? And I have just had a blast the last year talking to these Gen Z and millennial guys where it's like, what do you think about this? And you bring up all this stuff and you're you're not being dogmatic about it. You're just allowed to ask the question without getting excommunicated. And that is a gift of the younger generations. And if they continue to employ that and that, that aspect of their personality becomes a cultural norm, I do believe that Christianity is going to get pulled out of the dark ages and some of the Mithraistic, which is a sun-worshiping cult, and some of the um, more Catholic and New Age traditions, there's so much Catholicism, New Age, and old sun-worshiping cult, Phoenician kind of stuff attached to Christianity. That's It's kind of like been snowballing for 500 years and collecting all of this polytheism. And um, what I see is the... I see the millennials and Gen Z as kind of like the sandpaper that's going to come in and just scrub off all of the garbage that Christianity has collected as it's gained momentum over the last one to 500 years. And uh, I know a lot of people in my age group and higher, they're starting to fall into this trap of having no hope for the future. And it's the end of the world and the Antichrist is going to come and everything's woke and everything's you know secular and the whole country's going to go to pot. But I I actually see the potential through the younger generations of, of another revival because they're not afraid to ask questions and they're not afraid to be contrarian. And I am rooting for, for the next generation. And I don't think the end is necessarily has to be near and um i'm just excited to see what god is going to do through through the youngsters yeah i i i definitely agree with everything you just said i i do i had this last um scenario for you and then we'll we'll start to wrap it up i know i took a lot of your time 
No, this is great. So this last person is a devout Christian who places great importance on living a righteous and faithful life. They experience sleep paralysis occasionally and often interpret it as a spiritual struggle or a test of their faith. Mm -hmm. This person seeks guidance on how to maintain their Christian values and rely on their faith while dealing with the fear and confusion that sleep paralysis brings. How can you help this person align their Christian beliefs with practical approaches to address sleep paralysis and its potential impact on their spirituality? I love this question. It's sort of the culmination of my whole book. Spoiler alert. But <laughs> we all know the obvious stuff. And you you were alluding to this at the very beginning. The church's stance on this, if they even are willing to talk about it at all, is uh, what did you do to open this door? What did you do wrong? Are you cheating on your spouse? Do you have a pornography addiction? Did you play with a Ouija board? Do you smoke pot? It it We all know that there's certain things that we can do that can open doors. With that said, I know people, Danny, who smoke pot and live with people they're not married to and do all kinds of stuff, and they've never had sleep paralysis. Yeah. So there's got to be more to it than that, right? So let's put aside the whole, you're going through this because you're a bad person, because that has been beaten to death ad nauseum. Everybody knows whether it's sleep paralysis or not, we all have a moral and an ethical code. We all do stuff all the time that we know we probably shouldn't do. It's not probably wise, and whether it leads to sleep paralysis or whatever, so let's not let's not spend too much time there because that stuff I think is obvious. Let's talk to the devout Christian who is like, I don't understand why this is happening to me. I'm walking in step with the Lord. I love him. I'm faithful. I'm not out doing all this stuff. I mean, we all know that we're sinners, but they're not out doing all the obvious like stuff, right? The sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So why is this happening? And and to your point. I'm begging him to protect me. Yeah. And he's promised to be our rear guard. And why isn't he protecting me from this? Again, he looks like a promise breaker. What is going on? I loved how you added the word confusion into that question because it is very confusing. And sadly, Danny, I have talked to a lot of devout Christians who get so worn thin from night after night of this that they think, well, God is faithful. So it must be me. And I see people losing their faith over this because they don't understand what's going on. So confusion is a big one. I want to point out briefly that there is a verse in the book of Daniel, which is eschatological in nature, talking about what are some of the tactics that this beast is going to use against the followers of Christ in the end to win his war. And, you know, you'd think it would be like nuclear fallout and World War III and bombs and killer tomatoes and all this, right? But it says he's going to wear out the saints. He, he's not going to murder and kill. He's going <laughs> to wear us thin. And when you start not being able to sleep at night or you're not getting a good quality of sleep and you're just worn thin, because what happens when you're when you're exhausted? Night after night, if it turns into narcolepsy or insomnia, that affects your marriage. It affects your job performance. It affects your parenting. It affects your health. I mean, talk about wearing out the saints. So what I would tell a devout Christian is I'm going to give you three scenarios. There could be many more. One scenario is we could be living in the end. And I don't mean Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Um, I think that every, every 
century since Jesus rose from the dead is the last days, right? It's not Armageddon. It's not like the, but we're in the last portion of redemptive history because he's risen again. And so it might, it might not be the end times right now, but we're in the last days, meaning these are the days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we know from the book of Daniel that in the last days, the beast is going to wear out the saints, we live in planet Earth, and part of his tactic of warfare against us is he's going to try to wear us out. So part of that, that's what's going on. A second scenario could be that the reason the Lord might not be stepping in and immediately stopping it, it could be timing. Um, I'm going to go again to the book of Daniel. There is a, a great passage in the book of Daniel where Daniel fasted and prayed. And eventually, I think it's Gabriel, comes to him three weeks later, three weeks. And he said, I was dispatched to you the moment you prayed, but I was held up for three weeks doing war with, with the devil, right? And so behind the curtain, when we pray and say, God, you know, give me protection, if this is a spiritual war, it could be that angels were dispatched the moment you prayed that, but real warfare is going on behind the scenes to get those angels there. Another reason why the timing might be off, there might be a delay between your prayers of protection or prayers to be delivered from this completely and the actual deliverance. It could be that the reason God is in his sovereignty, allowing you to suffer this longer than you wish, is he could be fortifying you and training you for battle. And this goes back again into those metaphors in scripture that aren't always, you know, glitter and rainbows, right? One of the ways that we grow in our faith, I talked at the very beginning of the show about the crucible. Um, why didn't he just fix all my stuff in one surgery and make me the like homecoming queen, right? because he was developing a certain personality for a certain calling in life that required that length of training. So there are a lot of people here in America that are not strong and courageous. We're called to be strong and courageous, and we're called to not fear man. But a lot of us, because we're made of flesh, we're not strong, we're not courageous, and we fear man, and we do not know how to wrestle with God, and we don't know how to wrestle with fallen angels. And so part of the reason why it can be prolonged is it is a lengthy boots-on-the-ground boot camp training. We can read every book ever written on spiritual warfare and not know how to apply any of that. But when you're waking up in the middle of the night and you can't move and you're scared and you're helpless and you're learning how to control your fear and how to call in the name of Jesus, you are learning spiritual warfare, which is a good thing. So it's scary. The same way I'll bet you when King David wrestled a bear and a lion to the ground with his bare hands when he was a shepherd, and I'll bet you when King David was running towards Goliath, I guarantee you he had terror in his heart. But he did it. And he was fortified for that war. The reason he 
had the strength and the courage to run as fast as he could. I love that part of scripture. David ran with all of his might towards Goliath. The reason he was able to face Goliath is because he had previously faced a lion and a bear. So for those of us who may or may not live in the end times, and we may see things on this earth that our eyes never imagined, we may be in a spiritual battle that we never imagined. And so could this generation be undergoing levels of nocturnal spiritual warfare like never before because this is the generation that's being trained for that war this is our boot camp that's another possible explanation and and that launches into the the third explanation is that i think that he could be uh training the future king davids the the, the future army at some point there is going to be an army um one of the titles for Jesus Christ that's used frequently in the scriptures is Lord of Hosts. And in the Hebrew, that is um, Yehovah Tsevaot. And what it literally means is he's the captain of the armies of heaven. That means there's an army. And so I think that one of the reasons why he is building up or allowing this to happen to godly, righteous, genuine believers is because he is creating for himself an, an army. And the fact that sleep paralysis is very common among teenage boys and teenage boys going through puberty, and a lot of the teenage boys that experience sleep paralysis, it is heavily connected with wet dreams and sexual encounters and succubuses. Why is sex involved in that? I believe that part of it is because these entities are targeting specific individuals that God has in mind to be in his end times battalion. And the reason why the enemy is throwing sexual temptation at them is because that's the easiest way to get them focused on something else, right? And so it is a literal battle um, for today whom you are going to serve this is what the captain of this army is promising you all the pleasures of life and this is what the captain of this army is offering you and there is a, a literal war going on for for some of these adolescent guys i believe that he, it is some of these guys that are being targeted have destinies to be on the white horses along with the messiah and to to fight for righteousness and justice in the coming kingdom of the messiah and the enemy is throwing everything at these guys to wear them out to discourage them um and to tempt them away and so what i say to every believer of any age and either gender who is suffering this if you're a genuine believer press on in the fight of faith do not weary in doing good for at the proper time if you do not give up you will reap a harvest is there a distinguished understanding between that person who gets weary versus that person who doesn't get weary do you think that that is intentional by god for the person to have a person that gets weary even though they were designed to go through the battle um, yeah i hope that should make sense but what i'm trying to share is it's a lot to, to it is. you know, and, and it's not to say that, you know, give up and, and, you know, don't be brave, don't be courageous. 
but it's like when we we live on the planet you have your your typical day-to-day things to do like survive make sure you eat the right foods make sure you like you mentioned earlier be a parent or be a friend be a you know a wife a husband and all the things that come with that and and just having those things piled up the best answer would be to be this devout christian and and do things right but then when you choose that lane it's like I can understand why a person is like, I'm fed up, you know, <laughs> and I and I'm trying to learn more about, you know, what is what's the deal here? You know, what's the deal with everything having having to even war against these evil spirits? What happened to these evil spirits? <laughs> like, why are they so evil? Who hurt them? <laughs> like, you know, like, wait, wait, is there any way that, you know, is there any any way to deal because it's like well how do we even define evil spirits right because we have these people who could be now getting weary and they just stop now are they evil you know or were they supposed to be you know divine and they just got weary and they stopped and they might have a chance to come back and and these other evil spirits that are in the in the second heaven am i saying that correctly the ones that the higher places in ephesians 6 they were like this is their job like they were supposed to do this I guess but like why did they even get that rank like what would be the point of them having that rank and these are the things that I I struggle with I'm not sure if you have come up with an understanding but I I don't understand evil spirits I don't understand them existing just so that we can get stronger and be courageous it's Going back to if I create something and I design something or if I parent something I, I want the best for them you know, if, if it's, you know, and I could be interpreting the scripture wrong, but I'm going to, I don't, I can't remember it as above the same as above as below, do you know? Oh, yeah, as above, still below. yeah. So if, yeah. if I'm thinking about like, you know, this, the same concepts of parenting and things like that, I set my children up for success. I don't, you know, if something happens and I, and I, and I tell them rules and they follow the rules, then I expect that everything should go well, right? But if they don't follow the rules, then I understand, you know, and they understand, like later on in life, I understood my mom a lot better after I went through the trials and tribulations, but I also was able to see a lens where I did not have to try and do everything. Like it was very clear to me by being raised up in the church, what to not do, which saved me in that part of life, you know? Mm And so I guess to close out today, if you have any word for for those who are, this evil thing is just getting out of control. It does not completely make sense. Yeah. So by way of those who are weary and doing good right now, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two biblical examples of very godly people who fought the fight of faith and ended well. Um, Elijah was one jonah was another both elijah and jonah got to a place in their life where they were like i'm at the end of my rope they both i think wanted to die elijah after that mountaintop experience just ran with all his might and collapsed and just wanted to die and jonah had a similar experience too when the the worm came and ate the the shade away and he was burning hot and he just wanted to die so we know that that happens sometimes in to to the best of us right i don't think that becoming weary or exhausted or disillusioned or anxious in and of itself is bad 
because we live in human bodies. We get weary. We get tired if we're sick, if we're dehydrated, if we don't get enough sleep. Where it's crucial is how we react to it, right? And and so I have found in my life that the times I'm I'm going to quote Jamie Walden here. Jamie Walden is an ex Marine, and he is um, he wrote a book called Omega Dynamics, and he wrote this book comparing the Christian walk with with military strategies. So he took the Marine handbook, so to speak, and he showed all the comparisons between military handbook and the Bible. And chapter five, he talks about courage. And he said, there is no courage without fear. So we all kind of dream of being heroic and courageous. And, you know, with all of the movies that are out, all of these superhero movies, you know, all of these saving the world kind of things, it's it's in the human heart to be heroic. And so we all have that kind of craving to to be heroic. But according to Jamie, who who saw, you know, real battle on a battlefield during his days in the military, he said, there is no courage without fear. The only time courage is allowed to show up is in the face of tremendous fear, because if the fear was absent, you wouldn't be acting courageously. So it's the same thing with being weary. Uh, it says in scripture that when we are weak, he is strong. So when I've been talking this whole time about my number one goal with everything that I write and everything I do is to bring God glory. I bring him glory when his strength and power is made known. And when does that become made known? He looks strong when I'm weak. So his power and glory being seen, it is seen when weak things are sustained, right? That's one of the ways. And so there's no courage without fear. There is no spirit of overcoming without anxiety. And there is no strength and power without weakness and being weary. Now, it says in Isaiah 40, wait on the Lord, be strong and take heart. Um, for those who wait upon the Lord will uh, mount up on wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Even youths grow tired and weary, but those who wait upon the Lord, yeah, on and on and on. So what's the key in there? This is what we were talking about earlier. We can say God works all things together for good, but if we miss out on the rest of it, what it says is those who wait upon the Lord will mount up his wings with eagles. So the, the people that are going to get that second wind and that surge of power and strength when all the other people who are young and are, are running for the prize, even when they run out of strength, who are the people that never run to the end of that strength? It's the people who wait upon the Lord, which means sometimes we don't get released and delivered from the sleep paralysis as quickly as we want. Sometimes it means like Joseph, we're in prison way longer than we expected to be. Sometimes it means we have got that autoimmune disease longer than we think we should, even though there's a great physician with the power to heal us like that. Why isn't he? And waiting upon the Lord doesn't just mean you have to wait a long time to have all your prayers answered. And I would just strongly suggest if you are a believer and you have become weary and you need your strength to be renewed, go to Isaiah 40 and memorize those scriptures 
and take every thought captive. And when the enemy puts those thoughts in your head that you're at the end of your rope, I can't do this anymore, you take those thoughts captive. And you, if those thoughts, those intrusive thoughts that the enemy is putting in your head, I can't do this anymore, I give up, I'm not strong enough, I guess I'm not that kind of a Christian I thought I was, that is the enemy bringing out the sword. If you have Isaiah 40 in your head, it's memorized, you have a sword to clash back with. Um, those who wait on the Lord, you know, they will mount up as wings with eagles. They will run and not grow weary. Dig into that verse. Go online, study it. Look at what does that word wait mean in the Hebrew? What does it mean to mount up on wings like eagles? What is it about eagles? Where do they fly? Of all the metaphors that could have been used in that scripture, why an eagle? And there's significance to all of this. It's, it's beautiful. Like uh, there's something about the way that eagles fly that they have to, that takes tons and tons of strength to beat against the wind. But when they get up to a certain level of the sky, they soar, they stop, they can relax all their muscles and the wind takes them. They're not exerting any effort because the wind is carrying them. So if you're exhausted, maybe you're exhausted, not because you failed, but because you have been beating with all your might to get to that level. And you're this close to getting to that elevation where the wind is going to take you and do all the work for you. That's why you press on. That's why you don't weary. Because when you're exhausted, it's because you have been putting in so much effort to get to that elevation. And you can't give up because you might be an inch away. And if you just keep going, you're going to get to that place in the sky where Jesus says, I got you now. Just relax. And the wind is just going to carry you. And, and so just press on. So my exhortation to the weary believer would be, it's okay to be weary because when you are weak, he looks strong. And even the best of them, even Elijah and Jonah, they, Joseph, uh, Moses. Oh my goodness. Remember Moses, Jethro, his father-in-law had to come to him and what are you doing? You have to appoint judges and, and you, you are taking on all of this work and it's burning you out. Moses grew tired and weary. Jesus grew tired. He was constantly withdrawing into the wilderness to refresh his soul. There's nothing in and of itself wrong or bad. Being weary is not synonymous with failure. And in fact, sometimes we're weary because we, we've been fighting. You know who's not weary? The people who just give up and say, you know what? Every time I try to get closer to God, uh, the sleep paralysis comes back. And every time I'm not close to God, I don't get sleep paralysis. So I'm just giving up. Those people aren't weary because they've given up. If you're weary, it's because you've been beating against the wind. And I would just encourage you to do a word study on Ephesians 40. I think it's, I think it's the verses towards the end, like 28 through 30 or something like that and delve into those verses and take those thoughts captive and um, just use that that verse as a promise, as a promissory note, because I do believe that if we press on and we don't grow weary in doing good, that at the proper time, I love that, at the proper time, you'll reap a harvest. Yeah. Because, and why is it a proper time? Because you've waited on the Lord. And that's what the promise of Isaiah 40 is about. The people that wait on him are the ones that will get that second wind. Wow. I, that was just a couple of days ago that 
someone brought out the, that scripture. You speak about meditating in the book in a way that I absolutely adore mm-hmm. because it makes so much sense. <laughs> oh my goodness, it makes so much sense. And I was just, and, and not to give away too much, but I, I probably will just a little. <laughs> but I, I think it's, it's screaming out to me now because I'm reminded that, you know, we have these day-to-days and everything that we're doing in that day is preparing us for, you know, that experience. And so we're, you know, whatever we're taking in, like that's all the preparation. And so it's, it's that daily cleansing through the word mm-hmm. that helps us remember and helps, you know, kind of balance out that weariness is what I'm reminded of as you speak, because just like if you have a house and you, you know, you go day one, day two, day three, without picking up things, it starts to get messy. You know, things start to get heavy if you don't tackle it day by day, which is why, you know, meditate on the word day and night. Even if someone is not, don't consider themselves Christian or, you know, don't read the Bible, even on, you know, a scientific level, positivity, like just speaking something different than that, the untrue lies that you mentioned in your, in your book, but shifting that to the biblical world has a lot, a lot more weight than just the positive thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's power. <laughs> and so when you say that when those places where you could not do it your, on your own, that's when you see the strength of God come through. And that's where you're like, yeah, I didn't do that. But I want to thank you for, you know, going through all of my questions, sharing this time with me again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. There's so much more to talk about. And I and I just thought, I just knew that this was going to be a conversation. Like, I don't have it. I'm just going to get it all out. I haven't gotten it all out. And I will, I will continue to study on my own, but I would love for you to share how people connect with you, you know, hear more from you um, and anything else you want to share before we close today. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me on. Again, always great talking to you. You're such an encouragement. And um, you can find me at VickiJoyAnderson.com and you can contact me through my website or you can watch any of the uh, podcasts I've been on on the media tab. Uh, You can get my book, They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis at LAMarzuli.net. You can also find it on my website and click on it and it'll take you directly to his website. And you can find me on Instagram at VickiJoyAuthor. All right. And what about any communities? Do you offer communities for people that are, you know, dealing with sleep paralysis and are Christians or other? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of working on that. I don't have anything right now. Uh, I do. You can contact me through my my website and I do do phone calls with people who are struggling with it. I, I co-host a show with Tom Dunn. We're kind of on hi- hiatus right now. It's called Through the Black. And it's not specific to sleep paralysis, but we talk about everything related to paranormal, supernatural, the occult. Uh, We deal a lot with survivors of satanic ritual abuse and ritual abuse and uh, all delving into like the trafficking world and paranormal and things like that from a Christian and biblical worldview. So you can check us out on YouTube. I think the channel is Through the Black 2 with a number 2. And I think it might be shadow ban, Danny. A lot of people have trouble um, mm-hmm. finding it. So I can get you a direct link if you've got show notes or something. But 
Um, I think we're going to be back on the air in September, but there's plenty of archives to check out um, in the meantime. Absolutely. I think it's very necessary for you and your co-host to speak on this from the biblical perspective. I think it's it just answers so much for me when I was, you know, looking through the content online. It's it's limited or it's confusing. Like as you mentioned through your your book, I was like, yeah, that's absolutely absolutely <laughs> correct. <laughs> and to come across this, I, I think it was. I mean, I, I saw several videos of you on a podcast. I was like, yeah, this makes complete sense to me. So again, I thank you. You definitely have, in my opinion, and hopefully in, in a lot of others that you work with, um, reach those three goals that you mentioned. But that is all for today. I <laughs> not take any more of your time. I definitely should get to bed myself. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Awesome. Enjoy the rest of your night. You too. Bye. Bye, Danny.